Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Sam Jacobs, founder and CEO of Pavilion, and most recently, best-selling author of the book, Kind Folks Finish First, and equally important, Sam, the first two-time guest here on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. <laughs> this is Well, I didn't realize that, Ray. That's amazing. Thank you so much for having me. We're looking forward to it. We're going to talk about four main topics from the book, Kind Folks Finish First with Sam. The first is the power of failure. Second, understanding what you stand for and why it's so important. Third, the concept of getting by giving. And fourth, a core value that Sam talks about, not only in the book, but with his company, Pavilion, listen closely and act quickly. So Sam, can you take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics and Measure Up podcast? Yeah, of course. And, and again, thanks for, so much for having me. So I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Pavilion. My background is I've been here in New York since 2003, so just about 20 years building venture capital-backed companies. And from 2010 to 2018, I was in leadership positions as a VP of sales and chief revenue officer. And over that time, largely because I needed a support group to help me solve difficult business challenges, I started this company called Pavilion. It was then called Revenue Collective. It's now called Pavilion. And it was the culmination of a lot of my experience, a lot of my work, a lot of my frustration that led me to starting the company and then led me to focus on it full-time Really, the inflection point, which is the beginning point of my book, was Friday the 13th of October, 2017. And really, I, I worked one more place after that period. That was the day that I got fired from my second to last job. And then I began working full-time on Pavilion four years ago in December of 2018. And since then, it's been a wild ride and, and a lot has happened. All of it, or almost all of it, I can't think of really that many negative things, and it's also exceeded my wildest dreams. And it coincided with a shift in mindset that I employed really beginning about five years ago in a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike when I was with my wife and my dog, Walter. So the book is about that journey. The book is about building this company, which is now valued at close to $200 million. We raised $25 million last year. We serve 10,000 members all over the world. And all of this started not as any ambitious world conquering scheme, but as a dinner club amongst friends here in New York City who are also leading sales organizations to help them and help each other work together to succeed and realize our professional potential. And that's what the book's about. And that's what my company's about. Well, Pavilion is an amazing business and entity. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I want to talk about Sam Jacobs' own personal journey. I'm going to double click on that. I don't know if fateful, but I may be fortunate day Friday the 13th on 2017. And then I read the first four words in chapter one of your book, and they hit me like a freight train. And that was the power of failure. Can you share a little bit more about that day, your story, and why the power of failure is how you opened the book? Absolutely. So, so that day, you know, we were driving down the New Jersey Turnpike. We were going to a, a friend's wedding. 
who got married on Friday the 13th. So that I guess he was, you know, a budget conscious wedding, <laughs> an auspicious day to get married. And, uh, and I was using my phone as the GPS because, uh, there, you know, this was pre the ubiquity of Apple CarPlay. And, uh, and I had, you know, ways on, and then I got a little notification as we're driving down and it's an email from my then CEO. And, you know, anytime you get an email from your CEO, you, you always get a little bit of a, of a flutter in your heart. And we pulled over to a rest stop and, you know, we let Walter use the restroom and I used the restroom and, uh, you know, got a hamburger from Roy Rogers, but I read the email and the email is one of those very terse emails that says, you know, Hey, can you, I didn't realize you'd be out today. Can you come in Monday morning? Uh, first thing. And, you know, when, uh, when a, a person that is well-known to come into the office at 10.30 or 11 is asking you to come into the office around 8.30 a.m., you know something something is afoot. And I knew immediately because, unfortunately or fortunately, I this was now, you know, yet another company. This was three out of four companies that I would be fired from over the course of uh, the eight years from 2010 to 2018. I realized what was happening. And, and it was a point of resolution. I, I decided in that moment to not use this as an opportunity to wallow in self-pity, not use this as an opportunity to sort of lick my wounds and feel sorry for myself, but to use it as an opportunity to change the inflection and the course of my life and of my career. And I call it the power of failure because the point that I make is really one of mindset, that I had considered myself a failure. And as a consequence of considering myself a failure, I was a failure. And when you think about life transactionally, when you think about brief moments where you either win or you lost, you lose in, in that specific moment, then you can think about sort of victory and defeat very transactionally, very binary. But if you think about your life as unfolding over a period of decades, and especially your career, which of course it does, hopefully, assuming you're in good health, if you think about your life unfolding over a period of decades, then all of those failures are not really failures, they're, they're learning, they're wisdom their experience. And I'd been through so many different things that at the time felt like knives through the heart. You know, I'd had term sheets pulled uh, when we were trying to raise money. I'd been fired. I'd been fired in many more humiliating ways than that particular time, the most humiliating, which I detail in the book. I went for a walk with the CEO for lunch. And while I was on the walk and I was running a 60-person team out of a total company of 90, so I controlled and managed two-thirds of the organization while I was on the walk they turned off my email. They turned off my key card access. I was told not to come back. I had to go give my laptop back to the head of HR at a cafe, the Gray Dog Cafe here in New York. You know, walking up to a meeting to have to give somebody back your laptop where they have a, a glum look on their face, feeling sorry for you. It's just, it's, it's horrible. But all of these experiences I realized in that moment, they were only failures if I thought of them as such. But if I thought of them as building blocks towards something greater and better still, then they weren't failures, they were experiences, and they were the thing that helped me get wisdom. And I leveraged that wisdom building pavilion. And so that's, when I say the power of failure, what I'm saying is, hey, you know, whether you think you're a winner or a loser, you're right. It's all about how you think about it and how you reflect on it. And if you can look at your life over a long period of time, then you can understand that all of these setbacks are really brief interludes towards something greater and better that awaits you on the other side. You know, Sam, anyone who's been in a career for longer than a few years, but especially a revenue leader in the high tech world, right, you're going to be fired. I've experienced it myself. And I have this mantra that's like, stop being a victim, go control your own destiny, which is exactly what you did on that fateful day. But you've been fired twice before, right? 
why is it so hard for people to stop being a victim of the situation or their environment and go control your own destiny the way you did? Well, it's hard because the ever-present force in our worlds and in our mind is fear. That's why. There is so much fear that we all carry around with us every single day. We are afraid of what people think of us. We are afraid of what will happen if we don't live up to a specific narrative. We're afraid of sometimes not being able to pay our bills, you know, sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But the reason people struggle is because they're afraid. And when you're afraid, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to find other reasons why you failed rather than doing the tough work of saying, okay, if I'm responsible, I need to look at my behavior. And that's one of the key lessons of the book, right? Which is that I think sometimes people hear me talk about getting fired and they assume that the next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to unleash a torrent of invectives and, and swear words against my former bosses. And that's not true. I don't, I don't hold ill will towards anybody that I've had a, a negative encounter with in my life, including, you know, my ex-wife. Uh, and that was a, not an acrimonious, you know, acrimonious dissolution. But I don't, I don't hold ill will towards anybody. And I don't hold ill will towards those CEOs. I recognize that I contributed to those situations. And at the one hand, that feels scary because there's work to be done inside yourself in order to change. But on the other hand, it's incredibly empowering because once you stop thinking that you are a victim, once you start believing that you are in control of your life, now you're in control of your life. Now you decide what you want from your life and you can set out to achieve it. So, you know, I think it's very hard. I think it's not people's instinctive reaction. I think it's much easier to blame outside forces. But what I've found is that barring true tragedy, you know, natural disasters, you know, horrible things that I don't even want to mention them, barring those true tragedies, most of the things that happen in your life, most of the things are a function of your behavior. And if you want to change your results, you can change your behavior and your results will change accordingly. One of the things I love to do on this podcast is often talk about metrics and be able to provide the benefit of experience and wisdom on how you have metrics to make decisions. But I know why your book's a bestseller. So why you open chapter. So I'm going to move to chapter three. It opened with, what do you stand for? And I'm like, wow, that's when I decided to go and do something totally different than run go-to-market teams, right? And I was became my own founder. And it sounds like you had that same kind of seminal kind of earth-shattering moment when you were asked the question, what do you stand for? So number one, why did you ask yourself that question? And then well, I, did I didn't ask it. Uh, my coach, Jim Rosen, asked it to me. I hired a coach, you know, and this is, again, back at the company that I was at at 2017, and I could sense that things were going south. And so I hired this coach to help me figure out my way out of this, this maze, this loop that I felt like I was in. How do I get out of the loop? And his first question to me was, well, what do you stand for? And I just thought, you know, I live in New York City, uh, as do you now, Ray, and uh, this is a place that runs on money. And uh, it runs on finance, which also runs on money. And so I had been used to being around people where their only reason for existence was to make more money. And they didn't particularly care how it arrived. And so I thought that was a silly question. I said, well, what do you mean, Jim? What do I stand for? I stand for making money. He said, well, that's not, you can't stand for making money because that's not how money gets made anyway, right? Money's made as the output of productive behavior, not the input. And if you want to change your life, you need to figure out why you're here, what your values are, and what you really stand for. And that was that was a big moment for me. And it was um, 
a moment where we went on an exercise, we went on a journey, we figured out where did I get energy? How did I see myself? What sort of behaviors did I want to encourage? What were my true motivations? And, and at the end of this multi-week exercise, I came out with a vision statement, with a vision statement or a mission statement. I always get the two confused. And that statement was, I stand for, literally an answer to the question, I stand for helping people that I care about and respect achieve their professional goals. That was what came out of that work. Well, it's funny because that's almost identical to the mission statement of Pavilion, of the company. And it turns out that that clarifying moment of figuring out who I was and what I stood for was the critical thing that helped me build my values from the very beginning into the heart of Pavilion as an organization. Well, so helping others kind of achieve their potential. I love it. And it's aligned to another key theme of the book, and that was getting by giving. And not only is it a theme of the book, it's a core value at Pavilion. So I got a tough question for you, Sam. In this B2B high-tech, VC-backed world, coming out of the grow to any cost, how do you balance the need to have short-term financial success as a CEO and now an investor-backed company with the need to the longer-term return on getting by giving? Well, you know, I think that's a great question, Ray. The way I've balanced it is by picking the right investors, to be honest with you. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was at GLG, uh, the CEO there, Alexander St. Amon, said, your capital strategy, your cap table is your business strategy, right? The needs and wants of your shareholders are going to drive your business strategy. And if they want short-term results and they're trying to flip the company, then you're going to be optimized to drive short-term behavior because they are the owners of the business and they will push you in that direction. So part of it is just a true understanding of what the goals are of the people that you choose to align with and really doing enough due diligence so that you're aligning with the right people. I guess the other thing is that, you know, elephants specifically invest in, you know, a lot of the book is actually about building companies. It's not just about principles and mindset. It's about what are the principles we use to build Pavilion? And the principles we use to build Pavilion are we are venture backed, but we're focused on capital efficiency, which is another way of saying we're focused on trying to generate profit. And when you are not burning capital, right, when you're spending more than you make for an extended period of time, ultimately, you're going to give your company back to somebody else. But when you make more than you spend, ultimately, your destiny is in your control. And so if you want to be able to focus on the long term, then that means that you have to design the organization in a way that focuses on the long term. And what that means is you might not grow quite as quickly in one particular year as you might if you'd hired 50 people, but you'll also be in control of your destiny. And what that really does is align you organically with the growth of the market in a way. So the way that I manage that tension, I first, my investors and I are completely aligned. And, you know, for example, 2023, we're heading into it. And what's our prime goal? We're only modeling 20, 25% top line growth. And, you know, that's heresy for some companies. I had, I was on a CEO call yesterday and one of the CEOs that I'm sure you know, Ray said, well, you know, we were going to 3X and now we're just going to 2X. I'm like, okay, well, if it were that simple, good for you. Our focus is on capital efficiency and being profitable. That's what we're going to get to cash flow break even. We got away from it a little bit this year and we're going to get back to it next year. And so how do I balance that tension? I balance it by having a long-term plan, sharing my values with my investors and making sure that my investors are and I are aligned on what we're trying to accomplish. So I love the fact that you talk about make sure you choose investors that are aligned with your core values. But let's talk about employees at the same time, because 
to build a culture, it's not just, you know, Sam Jacobs, the CEO says, these are our values. The employees have to embody them. How do you ensure you bring people into Pavilion that really share those values, not just follow them because they're now working with you? Well, I'm not sure that there's a massive distinction because, you know, part of it is an educational, why did I write the book? You know, I wrote the book because there's a lot of people that want to believe that this is possible and just aren't convinced yet. There's a lot of people that are that are looking to do business in a different way, but they're just worried they're going to be taken advantage of. However, culture is very powerful. And if you say this is the way that we behave within the four walls of pavilion, the metaphorical four walls, then they can learn and that behavior can be modeled by other members. And for a long time, you know, we're building a digital platform now, but for a long time, we really didn't have any of our own technology. In fact, it's pretty remarkable how much how big we've built the company when we're using effectively many other people's third-party tools and services. But I said, we always had technology because the technology was our values. And what would happen is that one person would embody our values and then they would model them for somebody that was more skeptical or cynical. And maybe they didn't initially share our values, but they wanted to join Pavilion because they wanted to learn and they wanted to grow and develop. And then they would see other people acting in a certain way. And then they would understand that this is an acceptable way to behave. And then they would model those behaviors for the next group of people. And in that way, it is like code, right? It is like the replication of behavior at no marginal cost, which is why people love software, right? The next marginal unit of software is exactly the same cost to produce, but you make the same amount of money. In this case, our values were our technology because they were the thing that was being copied and pasted to future generations of pavilion members and model that this is the right way to behave. It's not a perfect system because there's still people that might say they believe something and don't really believe it. But I think it's it's a pretty good system so far. Well, let's jump ahead to chapter seven. And I'm not going to talk as much about the lead in like I have the others, but it's an interesting title, especially with 2023 right in front of us. That is, every crisis is an opportunity. And if you look at the B2B tech, particularly the B2B SaaS industry, everyone's talking about elongated sales cycles. They're planning for much, much slower growth next year. The majority of companies, you read LinkedIn every day about layoffs and budget cuts. So my question to you is, do you have any advice on how, whether it's founders, CEOs, or just any professional in the B2B SaaS industry can actually view the headwinds that we face going into 2023 as an opportunity and not just a challenge? Absolutely. My biggest piece of advice which is a theme throughout the book, is that you must look outside of yourself, right? Your natural instinct when you're heading into this kind of difficult environment is to worry first and foremost about yourself. Worry about yourself, your company. What are our targets going to be? Is 2x acceptable or is 3x acceptable? What you need to do is pull your, your gaze out from your navel, out from your belly button, and push it out outside, out into the universe, outward facing towards your customers right? Because everybody else is going to be worried about their survival and themselves. But the best people are going to say, no, 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 that's what everybody else is doing. They're all taking a step back. How do I take a step forward? Let me deepen my relationship with my customers. Let me put myself in their minds. Uh, Let me worry about what they're worried about. And what can I do to serve them in this moment that would be beneficial, that would demonstrate our agility, and that would showcase our ability to meet them where they are? And so- I'll give you a specific example from this very moment, right? So at this very moment, we have a corporate effort Pavilion does. It's called Pavilion for Teams. It's where we're trying to sign up your entire go-to-market organization to train all of your SDRs, all of your account executives. Now, we started off with a per-seat pricing model. And the problem in a recession is if you are 
firing people, then naturally you're going to face contraction wins. And I think even Salesforce reported lower than expected net revenue retention uh, this week because of contraction of seats, because if sales teams are getting smaller, and then you just don't have as many people to sell seats to. It was great when all the sales teams were getting bigger, but when they're getting smaller, it's not as easy. So what have we done? We rolled out over the last couple of weeks, we've abandoned per seat pricing. And it's just, we take the size of your whole team and we say, you don't choose who to sign up. You sign up your whole team and it's one low flat rate and it's massively discounted to the price that an individual would pay if they signed up on their own. And as a consequence, what has happened? Well, just today, we've seen two major expansion opportunities and renewals where the company, one of the companies, I won't say their name, they literally had just laid off 25% of their workforce and they expanded their relationship with Pavilion on an aggregate basis. Yes, average revenue per user is down, but total ARR is up. And so we are seeing 100% plus net revenue retention on the customer that is going through extreme economic difficulty that just fired a quarter of their workforce. And that is an example of how you can use a crisis as an opportunity if you're agile enough, if you're responsive and really listening to the needs of the market and then responding quickly. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Sam, because um, I spend a lot of time reading LinkedIn posts because it's an opportunity for me to learn and then think. And I've been seeing so much about some of the draconian layoffs of sales professionals within the B2B tech world. And it's kind of like, you know, six months ago, we had to hire fast and now we're firing even faster. And I think more CEOs and board of directors, even though there's some financial cost with this, maybe if they think about it from the professional's perspective that they're having to let go, that the company in the long term might have much higher returns and a much better brand. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, very much so. I, I think live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, I understand it, but that's why we didn't go gangbusters, you know, this year or when we raised the money, we didn't, you know, we, we've always tried to be somewhat prudent. You know, I'm sure we've made we've made some reckless financial decisions just like anybody else. But yeah, I think that the whipsaw of hiring 100 people and then firing 200 people is is not good. I do think, you know, and, and I don't know if, if you'll agree with this, Ray, but I think this new era, I don't know if it's austerity, if it's discipline, I think great companies will be built in the next two years. I hope mine is one of them, because I think it's going to force us all to get a lot better at what we do. Sam, you know, not only is this a great time to start a company, right? Now, I know that's not where you're at, but there's a lot of people listening today who are thinking about, well, I have a crisis. I just lost my job. The opportunity is to do what people at Uber did or Slack did or Airbnb did or Twilio did. Those companies were born out of the 2009-2010 kind of macroeconomic recession. So I think it's an amazing opportunity. But we're going we're gonna to wrap up, Sam. So... With kind folks finish first, is there anything we didn't talk about that you just want to make sure our listening audience hears from you directly? Here's the thing I would like the listening audience to hear. You know, the biggest change in my life came, and there's a, this is a story in the book. I was running on the West Side Highway. I was complaining about what a failure I was. My friend Scott said to me, hey, does it help? I said, does what help? He said, does the constant self-degradation, does the constant negative self-talk, does it help you get better results? And of course, the answer is no, it wasn't helping me get results. The biggest thing I did to change my trajectory in life was practice greater self-care and self-compassion, being nicer to myself and changing the voice inside my head. And every day or almost every day, I write in my journal, I love you, Sam. And I would encourage everybody listening, it doesn't mean don't be ambitious. It doesn't mean 
accept participation awards when you didn't do a good job, still hold yourself accountable, but be kinder to yourself. Be kinder to yourself because you'll get better results. Even if you don't believe me, even if you believe that deep down inside you're a real piece of poop, I would say it's better to treat yourself nicely and to be kinder to yourself because you'll achieve better results in your career. I think that's amazing advice. And it tells me that kind folks finish first. Look in the mirror, be kind to yourself first. And it makes you being kind to other people probably even easier. Exactly right. Well, that's Sam Jacobs, not only the founder and CEO of Pavilion, but most recently a best-selling author. Recommend everyone who's listening today have a chance to go out and buy Kind Folks Finish First. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.